we're continuing in this series this morning called What If? And while we don't have the story last week of the demons getting exercised out of a man going into a whole horde of pigs, we have another exorcism story just the same. There's a lot of these in Mark, and so as we're going through looking at different people's encounters with Jesus, it just happens that some of them are exorcisms. But there's a lot of good and powerful stuff in here that can make us ask the important question about what if we were to experience all of that again or anew? What would it look like to encounter Jesus fresh and in a new and powerful way? And what might that lead us to do? So this is the guiding question for the series, and one that brings us to our text today. A young man who's brought by his father to Jesus in need of help. Friends, let us open with prayer. Almighty God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable unto you, our rock and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So I don't know what possessed me to do it. By all accounts, I should have left well enough alone, but leaving well enough alone has never been one of my strong suits. Have you ever found yourself suddenly overwhelmed by a task that you thought you knew how to tackle? Now this was a few years ago when I was a student in seminary and working part-time in a local church, and on this fateful day, the pastor, my boss, was having some issues with the lock in the door handle to her office. And I don't remember what the trouble was, only that I felt certain that I could fix it. I had no tools, had no expertise, and yet was somehow still confident in my abilities. The discerning among you might have a sense of where this is going. But see, I had a degree in mechanical engineering, and how complicated could a doorknob really be? I mean, I knew the basics. The handles turned, and the latch moved in and out. And there were pins inside the lock that a directly cut key would move around to allow the lock cylinder to move. So I volunteered myself as a locksmith for the afternoon. I commandeered a set of screwdrivers from the church collection, and I went to work. Now, there were an embarrassing few minutes at the start, but I couldn't even figure out how to take the first piece off of the door handle. But it was only a little bit until I found the tab underneath that could be pushed to remove the knob. And then from there, it was only a matter of finding a few screws to pull out that were holding the tire assembly together. And then the doorknob was partially disassembled on the floor, all well so far. Now, the issues needing fixed were with a locking mechanism. So eventually, I managed to extract the lock cylinder, remove the brass sleeve, holding all of those smaller lock components, holding, and as it turns out, containing them. In a single moment, as I slid the cover off, I learned a very important lesson about the composition of lock cylinders. The pins that the key moves around in there are all held in by springs. And so when you take this, the, uh, the piece that contains them in there, there is no longer anything holding back the compressed springs. And so things would happen as you might in middle school, we used to disassemble our pens to play with the springs inside of them, those springs that powered the clicking up and down. And in this moment, I suddenly remembered all of the times a friend of mine had accidentally sprung the spring across the room, never to be seen again. 
despite our best search efforts, that leaving my friend was a now entirely non-functional pen. And so it was then, with some three or four springs scattered somewhere across the floor of that church office, that I started to question my earlier confidence. And while I was able to track them down, in the end, every one of these tiny little springs, all of these tiny little things, they didn't exactly fall back into place inside the court. They would need to be held down into place as the cover was slid back on, and I wasn't sure I could manage that. I managed to lose the springs a couple more times in the process of trying it. And so all hope of fixing the knob was now gone. From then on, my only wish was to get that doorknob back on the door. But even that wouldn't be easy. And that's when I started to feel overwhelmed, when my inadequacy encouraged my insecurities, and I started to feel this broiling mix of emotions right in the center of my torso. And the workday was now coming to an end. The pastor wanted to lock her door on the way out of the office, and I still had the doorknob in pieces on the floor. I had thought I could do it. Now I was feeling the do effects of my unwarranted assumptions and comments. In today's scripture, eight of the disciples have found themselves in a similar situation. They had apparently been approached by a man seeking healing for his son. And despite their confidence and assurances that they can't do it, they, in fact, cannot heal this boy or even contain the situation at all. Mark invites us into the scene at this point when Jesus returns with the remaining disciples and sees the crowd surrounding and arguing with these people. And after a little bit of inquiry, the boy's father speaks up and we're given an account of the boy's tortured existence and the disciples' failure to cast the spirits out of him. It's not entirely clear what the purpose of this medical history is, but it's almost certainly not an invitation to diagnose an illness from a modern medical perspective. The purpose of the story is more likely the desperate nature of the illness, the clear need for assistance and help that the disciples attempted to provide, but utterly failed to provide. I spoke to your disciples to see if they could throw the spirit out, the Father said to Jesus, but they couldn't. And Jesus responds to the failure of his, the failure of his disciples, not the Father's predicament, and says, You faithless generation, how long will I be with you? How long will I put up with you? And so he gives a healing and an exorcism wrapped within a discourse on faith and belief, comparing the faithless disciples with the Father who has a deep, if paradoxical, faith, though that's not at first. After summoning the child and we witness firsthand the impact of the evil spirits within him. The Father says to Jesus, If you can do anything, help us. Show us compassion. Jesus responds in a way that sounds rather harsh. If you can do anything, all things are possible for the one who has faith. And it sounds at first like a critique of the Father's faith, as though he should have approached this Galilean teacher and healer with a brash confidence and strong belief in what could have been done. But the Father's uncertainty is not without rationale. And the if may not have been there before the failure of Jesus' own disciples. And in this case, Jesus' response may not be so much a critique of the uh, Father's faith as a gentle return, an opportunity to forget the mess that the disciples made for the solid faith that 
good father did in fact that brought him and his son to Jesus in the first place. I have it, the boy's father cried out, and he won. So in the same breath, he says, help my lack of faith. This word, faith or belief, can be a difficult one, often conjuring up these ideas about creeds or doctrine, as if believing requires that we hold our faith in words, ever ready for the short answer portion of a heavenly entrance exam. How might we reconcile both having and needing faith in that way? But at its great root, to believe means rather to give one's heart to. Here, then, lies the tension that we know so well. To give our hearts over the one we believe in, the one we have faith in, all the while yearning to do so mournfully and mournfully. All things are possible for the one who has faith, Jesus says. And then he proceeds to perform the impossible. It would seem that the Father's complicated faith is sufficient. That he has placed his heart firmly enough in Jesus' hands and the offering of his son, and the child is healed, practically Later, when they were alone, the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we throw this spirit out? And Jesus answered them, throw this kind of spirit out requires prayer. Editors will later embellish Jesus' answer with more prayer. It requires prayer and fasting, they say, thereby giving an invitation to travel further down the well-worn path of ever-deepening spiritual practice. The other Gospels, in telling the story, have Jesus teach the disciples about having faith like a mustard seed. Both are useful lessons, but neither is given here in Mark. When Jesus says only, throwing out this kind of spirit requires prayer. The disciples simply didn't pray. What an incredible, astounding, and entirely believable oversight. The disciples, left on their own as Jesus stepped away for a moment, thought they could perform an exorcism on their own. They had been with Jesus for some time. They had learned much. They had even cast out demons before they felt confident in their abilities and touched with their downfall. There is a great allure in thinking that the further we develop in the faith, the more we will know until one day all will be known. This is the trap of fundamentalism, which shows up in every practice of faith at every point along the spectrum because we so long to believe that one day we might learn all the answers. One day we might master the, the divine so to understand and even control every aspect of our living. We want to know the way out of every tenuous circumstance, the appropriate response to every challenge and the path to follow from beginning to end. But as the disciples learned, Christian formation just does not follow this Theological formation, Henry Nowen wrote, is the gradual and painful discovery of God's incomprehensibility. You can be competent in many things, but you cannot be competent in God. We will never be beyond the point of exploration and wonder, never beyond the place where we must first and always turn to God for help and guidance. After all, and this is as James Baldwin wrote, to be with God is really to be involved with some enormous, overwhelming desire and joy and power 
issue for God's And so our faith involves placing our, our hearts in the hands of one we trust but cannot control, one in whom we believe but only begin to understand, one to whom we pray and wait for an answer. We are called to interrogate our assumptions that lend us blind confidence, called to question our assurances that encourage us to live as if we have no of the divine, or sooner or later, our self-reliance walks us into situations that we cannot contain and sends tiny bits of a locked cylinder into every corner of a church office where you work with your boss, looking on. I did get the lock put back together in the end, though I didn't fix it. It was a powerful lesson in spiritual humility, a reminder of what I can and cannot tackle on my own, a reminder that faith is not knowing the right things, or even the right things to do, but knowing rather the one to whom to turn. As we learn that all things are beyond our reach, that nothing is out of the hand of the divine. What if we learn to hold our belief and lack of belief in the same hands? Learn to lead on God in prayer and not our own what if you do? How little you can do without reminding how much God Friends, let us continue in worship as we stand and sing our next. Of course, you're going to put up on the screen in just a minute, so I know.